Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 5. The Screwtape Letters. Letter 1. State of Confusion. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. In the first episode, we said that we were going to be having occasional guest co-hosts, and today is proof of that, as we have a guest co-host for our very first letter from Screwtape. And today's guest is Trent Horn. Trent serves as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers, where he specializes in teaching Catholics to graciously and persuasively engage those who disagree with them. You may have heard him debating the existence of God with Alex O'Connor, the cosmic skeptic, abortion with David Boonin, Socialism with Sam Rocher, or Eternal Security with James White. He has master's degrees in the fields of theology, philosophy, and bioethics, and he runs a podcast, which includes a pun in its name, therefore making it amazing, The Council of Trent, where he not only talks about theology and philosophy, but also about severely underappreciated films, how to win at the video game Oregon Trail, how to survive natural disasters, and how to have the best day ever at Disneyland. He writes and publishes a new book seemingly every few weeks, and past titles include Counterfeit Christs, Made This Way, Answering Atheism, Hard Sayings, The Case for Catholicism, Persuasive Pro-Life, and What the Saints Never Said. And I invited Trent on this episode because in today's letter, Screwtape is going to be talking about many things which relate to Trent's work as an apologist, namely words, the place of reason, science, and argument. Trent Horn, welcome to Pints with Jack. David Bates, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for just being incredibly classy. I just want to say, well, I think because you're you're British, that's that really gives you an upper edge there. <laughs> for example, uh, you make the apostolate that I work for sound so much better, Catholic answers. <laughs> I, in fact, my uh, my son in the morning, he's been addicted to watching dinosaur videos, mm-hmm. and so you can tell that I've been derelict in my parenting duties. I just let him when I'm all groggy in the morning. I let him watch them on my phone. And now he just goes around the house saying things to my wife like, Mom, can you tell me about the advantages of the Tyrannosaurus? Mom, did you know the Tyrannosaurus could, uh, he weighed uh, such and such kilograms and had a bite force of 182 kilopascals? And so he, so he is, he's on the way to learning the metric system. I didn't even have to do anything. It's one of the ways I think we're going to reconquer America. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously doing my part by coming here, wooing your women and marrying them. But I think between that and TV shows like Peppa Pig, uh, I think we're going to have the next generation speaking yeah, properly. Darn you and your charming befuddledness. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, good. Speaking of children, uh, you are due with number three. I mean, you might have to rush out halfway through this interview. <laughs> Right. Uh, so so I have two children, two boys, and we have a third that is due really any day now, Mr. John Paul. So we will have three boys at home. I'm very excited about that. I've made this analogy, and I do wonder if other parents can relate to it about raising boys versus raising girls. And I make an analogy comparing it to a mortgage. So when you raise boys, it's kind of like the 15-year mortgage. It's really intense from the, at the beginning. <laughs> And it's just intense, and you're just hitting the ground running. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, it's it's done. Because when you have little boys, they just get into everything. Whereas you have little girls, they just sit, and they color, and they're docile. And, and it's just so easy. But girls are, are not like the 15-year mortgage. Girls are more like the adjustable rate mortgage. <laughs> like the first five years, she's like, this is the greatest deal I've ever had. This is amazing. And then the higher rate kicks in later when they hit their teen years. And I've heard parents tell me that's where it just goes totally off the rails. So I am totally happy with my three destructive boys. Uh, So two now waiting for the third to be born. Uh, It's going to be great. I actually used to live with a one-year-old girl. And while I would say she was very sweet, she could also have her banshee moments when just all hell would break loose. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that's just children in general. And I know that you've been 
recently married, and I'm praying that you'll be blessed with children because that's that's where the game really starts to change. I know. So when you get married, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful sacrament, uh, but life doesn't change that much. Agreed. But then when you when you have children, it's just it's completely the hardest transition though is we go from two children to three children. I mean that'll be hard, but I really do believe the hardest transition is zero to one. That's yeah. the hardest because at the moment you're going to be going from man on man to playing zones. Yeah, so I will, we will be outnumbered, but we've got experience. But when you go from just childless to having children, it's a whole new ballpark, and and it's a wonderful thing. Well, that'll be something for me to look forward to. I'm, I'm just trying to get as much sleep as I can now. Oh, and eat out. Go eat out as much as you can. <laughs> Go out, enjoy staying up late, and, and then uh, enjoy. But then when you have children, you'll still be staying up late, just not at you know fancy <laughs> bars and stuff. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted just to highlight before we got going was your book, What the Saints Never Said. Yes. Uh, you often talk about it being your least popular book because nobody wants their favorite sayings of saints utterly ruined by finding out that they didn't actually say them. And I really connect with that because I seem to spend most of my time on the internet correcting people when they keep attributing quotations to C.S. Lewis or changing them. And uh, I just have to go around and pop some bubbles as as a work of mercy, obviously. Oh, I'm sure that it happens a lot. There's certain people, they almost become archetypes in thinking or archetypes in behavior. So it's very easy to attribute quotations to them. So you have the ones I can think of would be like, Mother Teresa, the archetype of the humble servant, uh, someone who devoted her life to the corporal works of mercy. Uh, You have British wit like C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton, Uh, American sassy, uh, witty observation, Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. And so when you have those particular archetypes, I think it's very easy to say you read something and think, oh, well, that sounds just like Lewis. That sounds just like Mark Twain. And, And that's really a testament to the importance of this person, how well-known they are, and how much they represent their particular craft, and that they're so good at it, you can just attribute so many things to them. I think that really shines through for Lewis. Yeah, absolutely. Trust me, Potty. <laughs> right. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get on with the episode format. Sure. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, rather than just giving each of these letters from Screwtape a number, as they are in the book, we've uh, attached a title to it. And okay. it's been chosen from a song, which I think best sums up the letter. And so today's is State of Confusion by The Kinks. Other honorable mentions I had were You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive and Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin. Because one of the things that Screwtape is going to say throughout this letter is we want to confuse the humans. We don't want them to be able to think clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's embodied in today's quote of the week. And Screwtape says, Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping your patient from the church. Oh, his his obsequiousness comes into play here. Yes. And in addition to the quote of the week, we naturally have a drink of the week. But because I'm with Trent, it's a little different. Normally, we have beer, we have scotches, but we are having Sprouts chocolate milk because it's both a little too early for a pre-breakfast scotch. And also, Trent is something of an aficionado of chocolate milk. You bet. Well, so, David, when I would travel, so back when we actually were traveling a bunch before the pandemic, I would go maybe one to two times a month on airplanes to go speak at conferences, speak at parishes, and especially when I would leave early in the morning, I always had the same routine before I got in an airplane. I wanted to drink drink something just kind of nice and calming that would give me a little bit of a boost in the morning. And I hate coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker. I never got into it. Uh, and so I, I just said, well, I'm just going to get a chocolate milk. It has a sugar hit. It has a protein hit. It's smooth and enjoyable. And now I've gone to so many airports and I drink the stuff. I have like my favorite brands that I've <laughs> listed and that I talk about. And I can know what's worth drinking because there's some brands that are just absolutely terrible. I will pass over them in an airport. And I, and I think it's actually, honestly, I think that it's healthy. I've checked the stats and a chocolate milk has half as much sugar as a soda. So, I mean, that's actually, it's not as bad. So it's just a nice calming thing that I enjoy. And especially for me, if I, I'm not a breakfast person, mm-hmm. I, I don't eat breakfast. I don't like it. I mean, American breakfast is terrible anyways. I mean, True. you guys have your, what do you do, blood sausage or something? <laughs> you know, That's a little bit more Irish. That's Irish, but... yeah. But do, do you have like uh, beans? Sausages, and... beans, yeah. toast, some rashes of bacon. Yeah, and so that that works when it's kind of protein-based. And and that's funny. When I was in Australia, they had baked beans for breakfast. And I realized, yeah. oh, this actually works. But here in America, 
it's just awful. So I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> but if I want a hit of something just to get me going in the morning and I don't want to be all jittery from from coffee, I, I just run a chocolate milk and it's actually pretty delightful. And the brand you got is delightful. I, I don't know which one it was, but I know it's the best, David, are the ones that come in a glass bottle. Absolutely. Well, I got this one from Sprouts. It's their reduced fat chocolate milk. And it was because my wife told me that you were looking longingly at a bottle that she had bought and kept in the fridge at work. Yeah, when it comes in a glass bottle, you know they're they're putting a lot of effort into it. It's, <laughs> it's good stuff. Well, normally at this point, we would toast one of our Gold Level supporters on Patreon. But I thought that today we would toast your unborn son, John Paul. So if you'll please raise your glass. All right. John Paul, we raise our glasses to your good health and imminent arrival. May your delivery be swift and safe. And may you give your two older brothers a good run for their money. Uh, cheers to John Paul for that. Cheers. That is really nice. When I was growing up in England, Nesquik was a thing. And that was, that was the powder. And oh, it's the worst. Now, I mean, I was a kid. I did it. And kids don't know any better. Kids like that <laughs> thing. So I would make chocolate milk with Nesquik powder. And I would put like, you know, four giant scoops in to the glass. And I thought this is the greatest thing ever. Now, though, when you get older, you realize that that was pretty terrible. <laughs> so today we're going to be reading, as I said, the first letter from Uncle Screwtape. And this was first published in The Guardian on May 2nd, 1941. And in each episode, I'm going to give... Now a hundred word summary. In earlier seasons, I did 150 words, but since these chapters are smaller, I have to, you know, tighten my limit. So here we go. Screwtape's correspondence begins by encouraging his nephew to use jargon rather than argument to secure his human, explaining that argument awakens the patient's reason and moves the struggle onto God's own ground. Wormwood is told to impress upon his patient what Screwtape calls the pressure of the ordinary the stream of immediate sense experiences, so as to distract the patient from matters eternal. Screwtape illustrates this by telling the story of one of his former patients reading in the British Museum. The senior devil concludes by underscoring for his nephew that he is there to fuddle his patient, not teach him. So that's going to be today's letter. Do you have any initial thoughts when you were looking through it in anticipation of this? Yeah, I thought it was interesting, the distinction about jargon, mm. the idea that it's not an argument that we need to keep people away from God. It's using things that just confuse them or jargon. And it made me think about how Lewis was an expert at reaching the common man with reasons and avoiding using jargon. Because I think, honestly, David, one thing that is not helpful in the world of apologetics are people who go out and defend the faith, but they use so many sophisticated terms, what we would call jargon, that it kind of overwhelms the audience, and they can't actually receive uh, this these important truths that the speaker is trying to communicate to them. But Lewis was an expert. You read Mere Christianity, you read his works, and he was an intelligent man. He was aware. Jargon's not a bad thing. I mean, when we discuss among experts, and you're, you're talking about different issues, jargon or terms are just shortcuts in a conversation to speak about certain things. If we're talking about Christology, we discuss the hypostatic union, the beatific vision of God, or if we're talking about heaven. there's And it's important, especially among people who are at a higher level of discussion, it's a nice shortcut to keep the conversation moving forward. And it also provides some clarity. Yes. It, the purpose of the jargon there is to provide clarity for exactly what you mean with well-defined terms that we all understand. But if you don't understand the terms, the jargon no longer provides clarity. Mm. It instead makes things very unclear because the person's struggling to understand. So Lewis understood, would have understood these jargon terms in literature, philosophy, or theology, but he specifically chose not to use them in his works that were written for the common man, or originally written as radio addresses mm. for the common man. And I think that's important. And that's something I've also tried to do in my own works. I've tried to avoid, like, especially in my book, Why We're Catholic. I remember I was writing a sentence once, and I wrote the sentence saying, I said as nonchalantly as possible. And that's the perfect word to describe the tone that I was using. But then I th thought to myself, most people won't know what that word means. So I just took it out and said, I said in as relaxed a tone as mm. possible, because I didn't want to add the the theological truths I'm discussing with the reader are heavy enough to consider. I don't want to unnecessarily add burdens to them with jargon that's not necessary. Mm. Dr. Stephen Beebe's written a book on C.S. Lewis and the craft of communication. And one of the features of his work that he identifies is that Lewis is audience centered. He, he right. knows who he's talking to. And the example of mere Christianity is a really great example because that was 
those talks went through multiple revisions because originally Lewis went around preaching to RAF squadrons. Right. And he actually thought it was going really, really badly because he thought he was going way over their heads and using languages that they didn't understand and also stuff they just didn't care about. Right. So as he honed it to that environment, he got better at his craft. And then when the BBC asked him to do these radio addresses, he would write a first draft and then one of their people would look at it and give him feedback. And it was only through multiple revisions of that that we end up with Mere Christianity, probably one of the greatest apologetics works right. ever. And I think that there are certain areas among Catholic apologetics and theology where this hazard can arise. For example, if you're trying to explain the work of St. Thomas Aquinas or Thomistic philosophy, mm-hmm. there is very specific jargon that is helpful and necessary to understand Thomas. But when you start out explaining it to people, you either have to spend a lot of time explaining the terms, or you just have to not be afraid to kind of be folksy about it in explaining to people. So terms like act, essence, potency, uh, these are all things that are important, but you don't want to just immediately throw them out there because it'll go over people's heads. I also think, David, that sometimes a temptation among apologists to use jargon comes from a feeling that, well, people won't take me seriously (laughs) unless I sound sophisticated. Mm. You know, people won't take me seriously, and there's a concern that you want to be, quote-unquote, respected as an intellectual. But honestly, the sign that you're intellectual is that you can take a complex topic and you can explain it to someone in a, in a simplified way that maybe it loses a little bit of nuance, but it's still true. Yeah. So that's really the sign. And so I would give advice to apologists or anyone who's trying to explain the faith. Don't be afraid to be a little bit folksy about it and reach people at their level. It reminds me of what St. Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, you know, to the Jews, I became a Jew to win over Jews. To the Greeks, I became a Greek. Uh, to, the, to the weak, I became weak. I become all things to all people that I may win some for Christ. That's what we have to be able to do. And you say you have to put away your, your pride a little bit and say, all right, how can I serve my audience? Now, if my audience is graduate students at a college, then the jargon will be more helpful there. If it's lay people at a parish talk, It won't be. So I think that you make a good point there that when we communicate and share the gospel to imitate Lewis, we should be very audience-centered as we do it. Mm. The missionary that really brought my faith alive at university, she always said that there were three parts to a talk. You had to have good understanding, good theology, know who your audience is, and then bridge it through your own life and your own experience. Right. Those are all of the good ways that you can use jargon. And that's not what Screwtape wants Wormwood to no, do. He wants here. the bad ways. He wants the bad ways. So Screwtape begins by saying that Wormwood wrote in his last letter a lot about guiding the patient's reading and making sure that he sees a lot of his friend who is a materialist. And, you know, all of this seems like quite logical advice, particularly given that the two principal means by which Lewis himself converted to Christianity were right. books and friendships. Mm. He even writes in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. But what's interesting is that then Screwtape immediately turns around and says that he thinks that Wormwood is being naive Mm. uh, because he's getting the impression from what Wormwood is saying that Wormwood thinks that argument is the best way to keep the patient, the person he's tempting, away from God. And Screwtape, he says that this might have worked in the past. A few centuries earlier, he says that at that time, humans still pretty much knew what was proved and what wasn't. And if it was proved, then they believed it and they altered their way of life to accord to that truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he says that our devilish tactics, our weapons of hell, such as the media, (laughs) uh, we've managed to change the way humanity operates. Right. This is kind of chilling. He says, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily as true or false, but as academic, practical, outworn, contemporary, conventional, or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Oh, I love that when he talks about how you don't that modern man doesn't think about whether something is true or false. Rather, he thinks about what community does that statement belong to. So it, it's a, a very relativistic way of thinking. And I think mm. it's just unfortunate, David, that most people in the modern age have not been taught how to think through arguments 
or they, they've only been taught that to think through an argument is just something that stuffy philosophers or theologians do. That's not what the average person can do. But the average person does that all the time. They consider reasons. They reach conclusions. They're just put off from philosophy by jargon. You get people to tell them, well, you have to make this inference, and you don't want to have a fallacy. It's like, well, people already do that. They already make inferences, and they can already detect when somebody's doesn't sound right. They just don't use specialized terms for it. So what mm. we need to do is to teach people, you already do this. Don't think that certain aspects of theology or philosophy, the fundamental elements of our faith, are only for the eggheads, only for the professors. It's for everyone. You just have to refine. You already have these skills inside of you to detect the truth. Now we're just going to tell you the, the proper names that have been given to these skills that you already have and you've been using for a while. I was having a discussion with someone who is, he's definitely a skeptic. Mm -hmm. And I was sharing with him some of the proofs for the existence of God. And he said, this doesn't seem fair that I have to kind of rely on you to have read this philosophy and then explain these things to me. How is the average person meant to be able to do it? And I said, all philosophy is, is just thinking clearly, right. thinking rightly. It, there, are, there are technical terms and we, and we tidy up the arguments a bit, but all it really is is just about being illogical and thinking clearly. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Professor Kirk, he laments when he's talking to the children when they can't follow the logical conclusion for what their sister Lucy has told them. Right. And he keeps saying, you know, what do they teach them in these schools? He wants them to think logically. And this isn't just restricted to philosophy. When we look at any domain or field, we would ask the average person, he says, well, why should I expect it to go this deep? Well, you don't have to go that deep, but your life will be intellectually impoverished if you don't. I mean, you can pick up a cell phone and make a call and talk to people, and you can do all of that without pondering the deeper question, how am I able to talk to someone on a cell phone? Yeah. And to answer that question, well, you're going to have to do some legwork and read books or watch videos on science about how electric currents flow and magnetism. And so what you'll have to do is you'll have to start at some basics to understand, to get the jargon filled in, but then that will illuminate these other mysteries that you have, whether it's in science or literature or history. I mean, you can go all about the world without asking questions like, why are things the way they are today? For most of the reason things are the way they are in human conventions or government or cultures, it's because of events that happened in the past. And you can just live your life in ignorance of all of that, but it's going to be intellectually impoverished. But when you start the journey of asking, well, why are things the way they are? It will be difficult at first. It's mental exercise, just like physical exercise is difficult. You know, you see people who are in shape. Well, why should I go to all that work to have a, a body that's in shape? Well, you can live a life where you're sick and you're tired and it's not that you'll survive without uh, devoting yourself to physical fitness. But it's just not really a life that's that worth living or it's kind of subpar. And the same is true for mental or academic fitness, which ultimately then is superseded by spiritual fitness. But but you can get through life just surviving. But life is not just about surviving. It should be about thriving. But you're only going to thrive if you put the effort in. Mm -hmm. Screwtape then returns to the subject of materialism. Right. And he says, okay, you're patient. With regards to materialism, he, he doesn't need to think about it as being true or false. He says, make him think that it is strong, stark, courageous. Again, he's using this jargon. It's, it, it's forget about the truth value of the proposition. It, think of it as strong, stark, or courageous. And he even says that it is the philosophy of the future. And that alludes to a real struggle that Lewis had in his own life. Hmm. He had this, uh, he called it this great war with Owen Barfield, a, a man who would later become an inkling. Uh, and they argued about a lot of things, but they particularly addressed Lewis's chronological snobbery. Yes. His, his built-in idea that new ideas must necessarily be better. Right. That uh, the old ideas and old things found in old books, well, they're old, so what value could they really have? Well, it's the same. It, it reminds me of the common atheist objection to the Christian faith. People say, how can you trust something that was written in a book 2,000 years ago? Mm -hmm. Well, what does it matter when it was written? You know, if I write a, a statement about the shape of the earth or any other kind of truth, if I wrote it today or I wrote it 2,000 years ago, uh, which was uh, when, actually, you go to Erostenes uh, in ancient Greece thousands of years ago, 
discovered that the earth was round. People, you know, did know that. There's, I mean, it's a myth that like Christians believed in a flat earth until the time of Columbus. <laughs> and people told Columbus he was going to sail off the edge of a flat earth. That's not, people got that from a Looney Tunes cartoon. That's not actually <laughs> what happened. Nobody in the Middle Ages believed that, or, you know, there might have been one crank out there. But the vast majority of people knew that the that the Earth was round. So this idea that things are well, if they're newer, they're better and they're truer than if they were written a long time ago. That's just not true. It also is wedded to this kind of scientism that well, science always finds the way for us, and so we should trust the newer science versus the older science because you know we had Newtonian physics, and that was that re- that replaced earlier Aristotelian physics, and then Einstein replaced Newton. Although what's funny, David, is that. That should not actually give us that much um, confidence in modern science. You could say, well, we should trust science because it always replaces and corrects things in the past. You would say, well, how do you know it's not wrong now? Mm-hmm. When it was back when now was 300 or 400 or 800 years ago, they thought they were right then. And then how do you know everything you believe as a scientist now won't get overturned in 100 years? So I think that it's important to look at this problem of chronological snobbery and really help the modern man be disabused from this idea that his salvation and ultimate truth is found in the future rather than in the past, because that's where it's hard. How are you going to tell me some guy speaking 2000 years ago that he's the truth? The truth is somewhere in the future I have to get to. Mm -hmm. Well, no, there are truths there for us to find, but the ultimate truth is found in a real event that happened actually in the past that has implications today. Yeah. And Screwtape wants to obscure all of that by using jargon. And Lewis loved words. He was best friends with Tolkien, a philologist. Right. So he sees how one of the things that he loves can be twisted. And as Screwtape is talking about this jargon, it really makes me think of advertising. Yes. It's it's not about, for example, whether you actually need this product. It's about all of the things that are going to be attached to it. Is it, you know, strong, stark, courageous, the item of the future? Right. Well, it reminds me of a book written back in 1985 by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And so it's interesting, back in 1985, and they released a newer version of it in 2005, but Postman was concerned. People were asking in a panel, I think, what do you think it, dystopia will look like? And so this is in 1985, and this is, they're talking about, of course, George Orwell's book, 1984. And so they're thinking, well, what will dystopia look like? 1984 doesn't look like what George Orwell thought 1984 would look like, that for Postman, dystopia was not a tyrannical government that would overreach and take away freedoms. He said that modern dystopia would not be like Orwell's 1984. It would be more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, mm-hmm. where everybody's just hitting themselves up with Soma, uh, the drug in that futuristic world that dulls all of your senses. And our Soma is just television. And so what Postman was worried about is that people would, instead of trying to pursue truth through the mediums that truth is most easily communicated, like the written word, they're just going to be entertained and seek truth in television. This is back in 1985 when Postman was saying, look, you watch news. The news isn't really news. It's just entertainment. It, it even has theme music to help set the mood to know how you should feel when the story is read to you instead of you reading the story. And that was back in 1985 when news, when, you know, came, you know, there's probably three news networks. And it was way more professional and better than the state it is in 2020. That people would rather be, instead of learning things, they'll only tolerate learning something if they're being entertained at the same time. And that's a hazard then in that people won't want to pursue hard or difficult truths because they're just not being entertained while they're doing it. Now, what's interesting is, as you mentioned, those different dystopian novels like 1984, Brave New World, um, I'd also think Animal Farm. In all of those books, there is always an element of where how language is used to bring about this dystopian future. In 1984, they literally are rewriting the dictionaries to take away people's capacity to express themselves. Newspeak, yeah. Yeah. Or in 1980, or in Animal Farm, you have words that, that, you know, sentences and phrases that sound nice, but they actually don't make sense. Uh, All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Like, oh, okay. And then you'll hear these platitudes that the culture will give people to try to soothe them and say, oh, everything's fine. Even though the worldview that you're embracing is contradictory and incoherent, it doesn't make sense. You just kind of embrace the absurdity. And that's important when watching language. That's why it's important to learn how to think. If you're operating, that Lewis is saying with jargon and advertisement, look, don't get him to think about it. Just say, well, that feels right to me. And I like the words associated with that. 
But if you actually thought it through, you would realize, wait, that doesn't make any sense at all. And so that's why uh, Screwtape is really concerned here. We don't want him thinking through the modern world because it, it might sound right, but it isn't right. So when you start thinking about it, you'll get past the sound right and realize it isn't right. And he says something quite telling. He says, the trouble with argument is it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's ground. He can well, argue remember, too. For, for, for Screwtape, the enemy is God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so reason moves it over to, to God's domain because reason is ultimately uh, the light that God has given us to come to, to know him. The First Vatican Council made it clear by the light of human reason, God's existence can be known. You can't know everything about God. But you can just you can use reason to know that God exists, and you have to respond in a certain way to him. And Screwtape says that not only can arguments be made in favor of God, but he says there's something inherently dangerous in allowing your patient to argue at all. He says, by the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you'll have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Amusing ourselves to death, going back to Postman. This idea, and I think that's one of the hardest things, David, for me as an apologist. People say, what's the toughest objection for you to overcome? And, and I'll be honest with you, the toughest objection for me to overcome would be the argument from apathy. Well, why should I care? Mm. Who cares? And that's what's hard is that in, you know, 2,000 years ago when the gospel was being preached among those who were shrouded in pagan darkness, they at least had an understanding of sin and a problem, that they knew that when they would die, they would go to a ghostly afterlife that would not be pleasant. They understood sin and evil and being enslaved to the passions. They knew there was a problem. They just weren't sure what the right answer was. Today, however, nobody thinks there's a problem. No one has a problem. I can go home. I can order food on Instacart. I can watch stuff on Netflix. I can have anything delivered to me at the touch of a button. I can pull open my laptop and get work done even from home. And I can enjoy all these comforts and luxuries. Why should I even worry? So what Screwtape is speaking about here, you know, in mid 20th century England, it's even more amplified now that people could say, I don't need to care about all that ethereal theological mumbo jumbo. I'm fine. My life is just fine right now. And shaking people out of their complacency, out of the soma they've doped themselves up with to throw back to Aldous Huxley, that to me is one of the biggest challenges that we face. And he's also predicting the ship on the movie Wally. Yeah, where everyone is just uh, extremely corpulent and, uh, <laughs> you know, is moved around by, by robots and they have given in to the passions. They've allowed their passions just to determine what is good, what is bad, what is right and wrong, what is true. And the passions sometimes get it right. But the problem is that the passions are highly unreliable to determine, like, let's say, if something is right or wrong. So if a man is trying to determine, should the exercise of his sexual powers, is it good or bad in a given instant? Well, his passions, uh, he might by chance get it right if he happens to be with his wife, but odds are if he's with someone who's he's going to be with someone who's not his wife. So the passions there, it's like playing Russian roulette, mm. the idea that you're going to get it right just by following them. Because the passions, they lead, they always lead us to a good. Like if a man desires sexual pleasure, it's not because sexual pleasure is bad. It is a good. Mm -hmm. The problem is to become bad if it's ordered towards an improper end, like someone who's not your wife, for example. So that what's nice is when we have reason, when reason tells us, hey, wait a minute, that's not what this is for. This is not how I'm supposed to live. That's why Screwtape doesn't want people to use reason. He wants them just to follow their gut and their passions, which sometimes get it right, but they're, they're too highly unreliable. It's like you go back to Plato, and he would talk about the passions and use the analogy of the horses and the charioteer. Mm -hmm. We don't want the horses pulling the guiding the chariot. That's the job of the charioteer. That's reason. The horses are the passions. They give it the energy to go. But you want someone actually guiding them so they don't run amok. Absolutely. I want to focus on one of the other items in that previous quotation where Screwtape talks about this stream of immediate sense experiences. Yes. That also, to me, sounds like he's predicting social media. You know, it's your news feed. It's, it's 24-hour news. Uh, th there's always something else to focus on. Our, our phones have broken us. We're yeah. bro I'm broken. I'm a broken person. <laughs> I, I treat it like crack cocaine. I'm always going back to see it's, companies have created addictive algorithms and interfaces for us to always go back to them to get another hit uh, to scroll through. 
And we end up doing things like digital munching, digital mm -hmm. snacking, looking at, and what's funny is we're reading, we're kind of learning stuff, but usually it's kind of useful thing. I mean, sorry, useless things as opposed to focusing on, now it can be harnessed, I think, to things that are useful. So once again, there is good hidden in all of this, but it has mm -hmm. to be properly ordered. Yeah. But it's very easy to regard your Facebook stream or your uh, Instagram feed as real life. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. And especially if you look at something like Twitter, for example, I think 20% of the users do 80% of the tweets. You add it all up. What you see on Twitter represents about 1% to 2% of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's when you see on social media, it's not real life. But Lewis would say here that that's what Screwtape wants, to suck us away from real life into whatever sense experiences can keep us distracted. Exactly. And keep it, keep it moving and changing so we don't actually go anywhere else or do anything different. Right. Now, during this discussion, when Screwtape is describing the what he calls the pressure of the ordinary, this sense experience that, that it was just constantly being fed to us, right. he alludes to an advantage that God has in this area. Mom, can you tell me about the advantages of the T-Rex? <laughs> he says that all the time at home. I love it. So the advantages. Oh, yes. don't worry. Your kids are, kids are doing well. Uh, Screwtape writes, remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies. You don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. So here he's alluding to the incarnation when God became man. Right. And in Hebrews, it talks about, you know, he became like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. Right. But without, without sin. But yes, he became, but also that he was tempted. Yeah. And that's important for Hebrews that he was like us in all things except sin, Hebrews 4.15. He was like us in all ways, but so he was even tempted. He can identify with us that the God-man, the creator, can identify with the creature and become that model for us to be able to, to imitate him. But I have a question. It's like, is it really fair to say that God gained an advantage by doing that? I mean, he's God. I mean, in Scripture, it does talk about the incarnation in Mark, about Jesus growing, increasing in wisdom and stature. But... Did God gain any insight that he wouldn't have had otherwise? No. Well, God is omniscient. So we wouldn't say that God has gained anything in the incarnation uh, because God is al already contains all perfections and goodness. Rather, what we would say in the incarnation is that humanity gained something mm. and that in virtue of God becoming man, it's not like God learned something new he, he never had before. God, God is omniscient. But in becoming human, humanity itself completely changed and gained something new uh, in, re in response to that. Now, that doesn't take away, of course, that Christ in his human nature did acquire new things, such as Luke 2.52 says that he grew in wisdom and stature. Uh, for example, he learned things by experience. So learning how to, to do woodworking or stone cutting that Joseph would show him how to do this. There are some things that you learn by experience. Now, of course, Christ being omnipotent, because he's a divine person, he's omnipotent. So he could simply grant himself all these abilities if he so chose to. Mm -hmm. But if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the great kenosis or emptying him, St. Paul says that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a slave like us. So as a part of that emptying, he voluntarily chose not to use his divine attributes to give him a perfect awareness of things within his human nature, so that he identifies with us and we can identify with him. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, one of the church fathers, I forget which, he said, that which wasn't assumed wasn't saved. Right. And he completely assumed human nature uh, in becoming man, that he's fully man and fully God, so that he can be that perfect mediator between God and men. A mediatorship, by the way, that we all participate in. So people say, well, you, you don't need to ask the saints, pray to the saints, you have Jesus. Well, if that's true, I don't have to ask you for prayers either, because I have Jesus. And you're about to have a newborn, so you need all the prayers you yep, can Yep, sure do. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Screwtape brings all this together in an anecdote. He tells of one of his former patients, who he says was a sound atheist and who liked to read in the British Museum. He writes, One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I'd lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But Screwtape says that he wasn't so foolish. He went to the part of the man that he says that he had best under his control, his stomach. And he suggested that it was time for lunch, and it was, this was far too important to tackle on a tired brain and an empty stomach. 
And then he says, once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a numbered 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Real life. That's the issue here. And that's what screw tape, that's what the devil does to us in trying to convince us that this world, even among believers, that it is this world that is the, the material world around us, the pressing concerns that we have, this is the real life that matters. And all this other stuff about religion, about God, the, the spiritual life, that's just an extracurricular activity you add on to things. When actually from the Christian perspective, it would be reversed that what we see in heaven, that's the true reality. Now, I'm not becoming a Plato here, Platonic, you know, but, but it relates to it, that even the pagans understood. You know, you look at Plato in the Republic, the famous allegory of the cave. People who are trapped in the cave, they just see shadows of real things, and then they leave the cave and see the light and see what's real. For us, we need to see that, that God is the actual most real thing that exists, and anything we see in this life that is good is because it's a faint reflection of God mm -hmm. in some way. Even if it is distorted heavily by sin, it still reflects some aspect of God's goodness. And so we have to get out of this mindset of that our little trivial th things that seem very important to us, but in the span of eternity are not. That's the problem. I think that's what Lewis hones in on here when it comes to real life for trying to understand, well, what is real life? Because when I'm talking to people, David, they'll, they just assume I'm fine without God because they have this assumption that I, my life, is just a span of about 70 or 80 years. And if I can fill it up just enough with everything to make me happy, I'm set. To which I ask them, well, what if it's not? What if you're going to live forever? You're never going to fill up a everlasting life with enough stuff to make you happy. Instead, you'll be eternally miserable. That's what hell is. So I think that's an important thing we need to have people to dawn on them as we talk to them about this stuff. Yeah, and Screwtape wants the patient's senses filled up with all of the day-to-day -day right. to distract him from the eternal. You know, it's the, the immediate and local rather than the uh, eternal and heavenly. Well, he says yeah. they find it impossible to believe in the unfamiliar. Well, the familiar is before their eyes. Well, it's like when I have my children and I try to explain to them what we're doing for the day and maybe a plan changes or I promise them something really good that we're going to go to. Like finally the Air and Space Museum has reopened after the pandemic and I want to take them. We want to take them to the park or something really good and they're just completely fixated on a Lego thing they're trying to build right <laughs> at this moment and completely lose their composure when I say, well, no, it's time to go. I'm like, but I have to get this done. And I want to laugh like you're, you're acting like it's the end of the world. You couldn't put your little Lego pieces together. But from God's perspective, it's like you're acting like it's the end of the world. You couldn't get your little elements of your mortal life together that you wanted. When from the view of eternity, there's so many bigger things for you to be concerned about. And Lewis speaks about this in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He compares ourselves to children playing mud pies because they don't know how great it is to have a holiday at the sea. He says that our passions are not too large for God. They're usually too small. We mess around down here with, you know, uh, money and sex and power, and eternal glory is waiting us. British childhoods just sound very sad. <laughs> I just imagine someone sitting around in some kind of gray, foggy environment, play, like making mud pies and... Uh, you know, worrying about a blitzkrieg or something like that. I, I'm, sh I'm sure you had a delightful uh, British childhood, but it, I guess I always think it's either that or there's some orphan somewhere. <laughs> I just think like, what, do you, what is David Bay's childhood like? Well, I'm sure he just lived in a giant house with other kids. Is like, please, sir, can I have some more? <laughs> more? <All laughs> I'm I'll, sure it's a lot better than that. All I'll say is don't knock mud pies until you've made them. And uh, I'm more than happy to come around and teach your sons how to make mud pies and then leave walk away <laughs> right leave me with the, da with the damage <laughs> all righty good good now there are actually a couple of things about this anecdote that Screwtape says that i think uh is worth mentioning he, he talk he's talking about the, the the reading room at the british museum and if you look at pictures of it it is gorgeous high vaulted ceilings massive windows right and it's in this environment with books that Screwtape sees his patient going in the wrong direction. Right. So what he does is he has to snatch him out of that environment, that environment of quiet, out of beauty, out of thoughtful reflection and new ideas, and then just stuff him with, with, with sense experiences. Right. We live in a generation 
where we are starved of silence. Mm-hmm. We are starved of beauty. We go and consume our, our media feeds instead. Well, Car- Cardinal Seurat wrote that book uh, a while back on silence and the was it di- the dictatorship the power of silence the power, power di- of silence ironically enough i actually have that book on audio cassette <laughs> well <laughs> right. audio, audio i can't possibly sit quiet and read this so <laughs> yeah it was the, the power of silence about how we get uh annoyed i think almost in the presence of silence uh, i've actually read accounts of people who have visited places like uh pripyat ukraine which is the major town right outside of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. And so because of the radioactivity from the Chernobyl nuclear incident, there's no wildlife there. So there's no wildlife, there's no animals, no insects, there's nothing. So on a day when the wind is not blowing, uh, some people have described it as the silence is deafening. Like it almost hurts people's ears how quiet it is, that we get so uncomfortable being just with ourselves without having something to distract us. Which is why when I work, I always end up having, uh, I play music from the Disneyland uh, cues. <laughs> Here's one that I will highly, no, I highly recommend if you want something delightful on in the background when you're working, the music from the line of the Jungle Cruise. So in the line of the Jungle Cruise, it is a faux 1940s uh, news station playing music and giving little uh, updates on what's happening in the jungle. So just, if you if you can't, if silence is good, shoot for that. But if you can't, <laughs> I, I think it's it's an enjoyable trip. Disneyland is better. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the other things about the story is how Screwtape gets him out of there. Right. And it's out of control over his stomach. Oh. And this this is why in the Christian tradition we fast. Their uh, God is their belly, as St. Paul would say. That, that, that's what people worship. I mean, Lewis even talks about, it's so funny, he talks about the wrongness of pornography, and he tries to make an analogy once, and he says, imagine if someone just watched a, a television of someone just making food and, you know, drooled over it, and we would see how bizarre that would be. It's like, yeah, of course, but, but now we have whole networks <laughs> devoted to that. And it's weird, when I watch, I'll go to the doctor's office, I think, and they had the food network on, and it just it was just someone making food and dribbling chocolate over it, and I was sitting there like, this is porn. <laughs> this is this is food porn. And even people who like it will admit that's what it is. But it appeals to our base desires to get us away from reason. And that's why we fast. Because it's yes. often seen as something negative. Right. But the, the catechism actually explains it beautifully. In paragraph 2339, it says, Fasting is an apprenticeship in self-mastery. Is a training in human freedom. You know, we don't think of it in that way. Right. Human freedom. It says, either man governs his passions and finds peace or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. Right. <laughs> that's that's why we fast. You know, the, the, the reason why we have fish on Fridays, well, that's not really much. If of... we're not able to deny ourselves of the food we want, of a good that we want, how are we going to be able to deny ourselves when sin, which is dressed up as an extremely attractive good that is not good for us, uh, how, how are we going to be able to deny ourselves of that when it presents itself? Yeah. Just before we get on to that last bit of, about science, when I was researching this letter, uh, I, f- I found correspondence between Lewis and his editor, Jocelyn Gibb, talking about this letter because people wrote in commenting that there is no way that the patient could have seen the number 73 bus near the British Museum. It was nowhere near the route. Oh, my gosh. The nitpickers. <laughs> it, they still they still <laughs> exist. Uh, it, I mean, even even today, you would think like on the Internet, people will say, well, that's not right. Or you didn't get that right. That people have to write in to show and and get that wrong to miss. And that's the, and that's the devil right there saying, fine, use their reason, <laughs> but get their reason towards the most trivial thing possible. <laughs> but but speaking as a pedant, I also do understand it. Uh, right. At the end of the letter, Screwtape gives some parting advice, mm. and it relates to science and what Wormwood's job is here. Mm-hmm. Screwtape warns Wormwood to steer his patient away from the real sciences. Right. He says that these will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. So often, science is seen as this great enemy of faith. But Screwtape is saying, no, no, if he's getting into science, he's going to be thinking and reasoning about things that he can't actually see with his naked eye. And he says this has been the case with among some of the modern physicists. And he says, well, if he has to dabble in science, keep him in economics and sociology. Don't let him get away from that invaluable real life. And the next comment just makes me think of most social media comments. He says, the best idea of all is to let him read no science, 
but to give him a grand general idea that he knows it all, and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Right, but he's relying on other people to do the legwork for him, saying, oh, I, I saw a TED Talk on this once. <laughs> I saw this on YouTube. It must be true. Right, and so you don't understand that some experts who are legitimate experts in one field are not going to be experts in another. So Neil deGrasse Tyson has many valuable things to say about astrophysics, not as much about God. Same with Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. uh, many valuable things to say about biology and evolution and genes. But when it comes to God, uh, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga says that his work... Uh, to call it sophomoric would be an insult to sophomores everywhere. And so I think that's that's important to consider. I like what he said, though, about science, saying, you know, fine, if he's going to do sciences, do economics, keep him still rooted in people, uh, not the most... Like, you go to the very basic sciences, like, take physics, or even before that, it'd be a science, quote-unquote, mathematics, mm -hmm. uh, that ultimately... Uh, Eugene Wigner, back in 1960, wrote an article talking about the applicability of mathematics. And it's amazing we come up with these mathematical structures and theorems and that they perfectly correspond to the world around us. And Wigner said that it's a miracle that they actually do that, that there's this deeper structure to the universe that we're able to, that we can model with math. And then we do mathematical calculations and we can predict things that actually occur in, in the real world. We can discover new particles like the Higgs boson or new pl or planets should be in a certain place uh, just by applying this. So I think it's right. He's saying, oh, you know, use science, but keep them away from those those big questions. And what's interesting, David, is that people think, oh, well, it doesn't science just make people atheists? Well, no, actually, if you read the book Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think by Elaine Eklund, it was a 2010 book, she did a research of this. And it's true, scientists are more likely to be atheists, but that's only because atheists are more likely to become scientists. Mm. So it's not that the science made them atheists. They became atheists much younger in life, and then they thought science is where they fit in. But rather, if you approach it with an open mind, uh, there are many scientists who see You look at uh, Francis Collins, of the, the director of the NIH. Whose who, conversion was actually partially brought about through mere Christianity. Through, right. And so he wrote the book, The Language of God, and seeing in the, the genetic code and in the laws of nature, he saw the handiwork of God when he approached it with an open mind. When I read this section, it actually reminded me of something I heard Peter Kreeft say in a talk about the different kinds of science. He says that there are relatively few atheists among neurologists and brain surgeons and among cosmologists and astrophysicists. Right. But there are many atheists among sociologists, psychologists, and historians. Right. And he then says, the reason seems obvious. The first studied divine design, the second human undesign. Right. And then Screwtape then wraps up the letter by telling Wormwood what his job is here. He says, do remember you are there to fuddle him, to confuse him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was our job to teach. And that just brings us full circle. The fact that this is not through argument, it's through jargon and confusion. Right, and that's what the devil wants to do. When he sows confusion, then he can lead people to him. I mean, it's funny, the devil is incredibly smart. He's like one of the smartest creatures that exists, uh, but he chooses not to attack us with a well-formulated argument to overcome objections. It's not like he, he doesn't usually send, if you're in the British Museum, he doesn't send an atheist there, well, here's why this is all wrong, and here's this argument. He's so smart, he knows he doesn't have to do that. Instead, he knows, if I can just get you distracted by the things of this life and worrying about what's in your gut or worrying about how you're not going to be bored later this afternoon or at this present moment— then that will accomplish his mission. But he knows it's a gamble for him that he could try an argument. He could try reason. But for the devil, it's just a highly, it's just a riskier proposition. Because mm. now when you're thinking about these important things, yeah, maybe you could get reasoned into being a stalwart philosophical atheist who knows all the arguments backwards and forwards to combat those Christian apologists. He could try that. But odds are many people going down that route will make a left turn into seeing, no, wait, the truth makes more sense in a Christian worldview. It's safer for him to say, don't even get him thinking about that stuff in the mm. first place. Keep him on the banal, the mundane. And that's why I would say to, to our listeners, don't stick around with that stuff. If you're always checking your phone, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm totally guilty of this. But we have to be cognizant of this, not to be distracted by the mundane elements of this life, because that's part of, the, of Screwtape's trap. That's the devil's trap. Yeah. 
And in the mode of giving advice, we now move into Screwtape Unscrewed. So Screwtape has been giving this advice to a fellow demon, and right. it's all this twisted logic. So in this section, we try and untwist it. We try and put it in its positive form. Right. So some things I would suggest that this letter teaches us is connect thinking and doing. As he says, people used to do that. Know what's been proved and unproved. Don't just blindly believe all advertisements or everything you hear and see. Think of it in terms of true and false. And a, a big one I, I got out of the anecdote. Take some time for quiet reflection. Yes. And do this in beautiful surroundings. And consider universal, eternal things. I mean, you and I live in San Diego. But really, how often do we remember that and make use of it? You, you go out into the street, you ask how many people went to the beach this weekend. It will be a very small number. Right. Uh, or even just out to one of the other beautiful spots. I, I will say I went the other day. I got to go by myself. <laughs> My lovely wife, Laura, let me have some alone time. Because when you go to the beach with children, it's very different when you go by yourself. When you go by yourself, you can ponder the eternal and hear the waves crashing, feel the warmth of the sun. And it's an excellent ideal opportunity for that. When you take children, you're just always <laughs> making sure someone doesn't drown. <laughs> drown or eating sand. Drown. Or bury their sibling. Right. Or or go and run through some other kid's sand cap. I mean, there's a million things that can go wrong. It's the You just can't ponder. Now, pondering, what's funny is with, with kids... Uh, there, I mean, there are those moments, though, with children that do bring you the ability to ponder the universal, that when you see uh, a child's ability to simply trust and love their parent or to see even a child just sleeping soundly and peacefully it and to understand that paternal or maternal bond that you have. Now, in those moments, you can actually sense the universal and the divine even stronger, I feel, than just sometimes when I'm just out hiking in the woods mm. or something like that, because you see that interpersonal relationship because god ultimately is i mean he's not a person like you and i are persons but he's not a force he he has will intellect so to know god is to know a person that just is love itself so i think sometimes while children can make it hard to have that that ideal prayer life we always have when we're, we're singles <laughs> those special moments with them help you to understand the the, the fatherhood of god uh god's parental attributes as creator as one who loves for us, as First Peter chapter 5 says, we can cast all our anxieties on God, for he cares for us. So it's all about finding those, those moments and, yeah, getting away from the more distracting things in life. Mm. The final thing I had to say for Screwtape Unscrewed is also take an interest in science and realities that you can't see with your naked eye. And so read books by believing scientists. You mentioned Francis Collins's book earlier, The Language of God. Uh, also, Stacey Trisankos, uh, Particles of Particles Faith. Particles of Faith is a great book. Stephen Barr has a wonderful book called Modern Physics, Ancient Faith is another one. Luke Barnes has a great book on the fine-tuning argument mm -hmm. for the existence of God, how the laws of nature point towards God. I'd also add as a helpful bit of advice for people who may say, well, I want to learn about this stuff, or I want to go deeper, but I'm concerned there's so much to learn, or I want to answer these objections to our faith, but there's just so many. I think for a lot of people, David, they don't want to get involved with thinking hard about this because they don't want to confront what seems like an endless number of objections or questions. It just feels overwhelming. And my advice is that, and I say this to myself when I feel overwhelmed, it's not Hilbert's Hotel. <laughs> so Hilbert's Hotel is a thought experiment devised by, I believe his name is David Hilbert, uh, a mathematician. And it's the idea about how if you had an, a hotel with an infinite number of rooms, that would be contradictory. It couldn't actually exist. Because, for example, you could do uh, transfinite arithmetic and lead to contradictory results. Like if all the guests in the odd-numbered rooms checked out, so infinity minus infinity would be infinity because mm -hmm. all the even-numbered guests are there. But all the guests after room four check out, infinity minus infinity is four. And so you, you, get, you get these kinds of, of contradictions with the hotel. And this plays in arguments William Lane Craig does with the Kalam cosmological argument. But the point I bring up with the hotel is I think to myself, no, the objections are not Hilbert's hotel. There are not an infinite number of rooms that I have to, to go through. There's there's actually a finite number. They can these questions, objections, and issues to discuss. There's a finite number, and if you just and if you dedicate even just ten to twenty minutes a night towards 
learning scripture or reading a book on science or, or an audible book. Uh, you will grow in knowledge, and it just takes time. Lewis makes this very point in Mere Christianity. When it comes to growth, we can't see ourselves growing at the very moment. You only see it by reflecting on the past, by looking at a picture and saying, oh, wow, I've really grown <laughs> since then. So don't be frustrated. It will it will take time for that spiritual and academic growth, but it, it'll be well worth it if you invest in it. I think that's a good way to wrap things up with an exhortation to learn your faith better and engage in some apologetics. Absolutely. So, Trent, thank you for coming on the show. And where can people find out more about you, your books, and your podcast? Well, I'd recommend my website, TrentHorn.com. You can check out my podcast, The Council of Trent. Uh, That's available on iTunes and Google Play, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, Council. I've had a lot of people say that it's misspelled. It's a pun, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. It's a pun. Council of Trent, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, available on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, you can also check out my work on Amazon at Catholic.com. Uh, check all that out. If you want to support my podcast, you can also go to TrendhornPodcast.com. Become a premium subscriber to get access to bonus content and other great things like that. But I would just recommend checking out the Council of Trent on iTunes or Google Play. Oh, I also have a YouTube channel. I do rebuttals of videos that are critical of the Catholic faith. That's available at the Council of Trent on YouTube. And I'll have links to all of those and everything else that we've talked about in the show notes, which you can find by clicking on the title for this episode. We will be reading and discussing a new letter from Screwtape next week. So please join us then when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.